The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. And if you're a company or municipality and you want to electrify your fleets, get in touch with an EV specialist over at PG&E at pge.com forward slash GTM. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight has a suite of software and engagement tools that deliver customer experiences like Amazon and Netflix. Utilities, if you need to up your game on customer experience and customer satisfaction, you should turn to Uplight. And if you want to learn more about Uplight's expanding services to help remake the utility-customer relationship, visit uplight.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Shail Khan is with me as always. He's my co-host and a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shail. Hello, Stephen. You are closed off in your home office with a lot of family around you for the July 4th holiday, I take it. I am. I'm headed out on vacation, so I have a bunch of family visiting ahead of, and then uh, ultimately when I return from vacation as well. So it's a crowded house. So you're sitting around over breakfast with your family. They're talking about their days, and you're like, well, let me let me tell you about IEA and OPEC forecasts for the global energy system. Oh, boy. Don't get me started on that Equinor renewal forecast. <laughs> well, this week... Where is the global energy system headed? We'll saddle up to a smorgasbord of models for the global energy system, or a goulash, or a potluck, whatever you want to call it. Uh, A group of researchers took nine prominent outlooks for global energy markets that featured a range of scenarios, threw together this wide range of conservative and ambitious scenarios, and came out with a harmonized view of how things may play out in the energy sector. And now we get to feast. So, Shale, since our audience continues to grow, some of our listeners may not remember that you were, in fact, head of research at GTM for over a decade before leaving for the world of venture capital. I think I might have asked you this one before. What was the hardest thing you've ever had to model? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, honestly, <laughs> we did a ton of it, and GTM still does it, but trying to model consumer behavior for like like individual consumer behavior for adoption of sort of anything is really challenging and the more granular a forecast you're trying to do the more challenging it is so an example would be residential solar you know there you there's a bunch of economic analysis that there are neighborhood effects. So when a couple people get solar on a roof, then their neighbors are more likely to get it. How do you model that in? What does that actually, that diffusion curve look like? Similarly, it's easy to just say like, okay, well, we're going to do some economic modeling and tell you that when solar on a levelized cost basis becomes cheaper than grid power, then adoption is going to increase. The reality, as we've seen, is it's much more complicated than that. There are various tipping points that seem to make a big difference. Then there are various demographic effects. So this is like a, you know, it's a complex modeling challenge to try to get it right. Um, And I think GTM's done as well as anybody has at it, but it's, it's really hard to predict, especially over longer time horizons. And I would say that's true now of like batteries. Residential energy storage is even more baffling from a modeling perspective because 
you know, you can't make the economic argument for it. So you have to rely on, well, some share of solar is going to include storage and the economics are better in some places than others. But how do you attach a value to people's desire for backup power? It's just a, it's a complicated question. Criticizing a lot of the scenarios for the growth of renewables or the changeover in the energy system globally has become its own sport now. Do you have empathy for the researchers at like the Energy Information Administration and the International Energy Agency who are often poked at and and pushed around for being too conservative? I do in general. I, I mean, it, it is really difficult. And the models that they're trying to build are multifaceted and complex and include all fuels and they all have to tie together. And it's hard. And, you know, as they would tell you over and over and over again, they're not really trying to create forecasts. They're trying to create scenarios, um, which I think is a bit of a cop out, but there is a distinction there. They're trying to say what happens if X, Y, and Z are true, not what do we think is most likely to happen. Nonetheless, I think that the main knock on particularly the EIA, the U.S. version, is that they are wrong in the same direction over and over and over and over and over again. And, you know, there's a point at which you you can't get away with that anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. So every year we see a wide range of scenarios for the U.S. energy system and the global energy system from an equally wide array of organizations Again, the EIA in the U.S., the International Energy Agency globally, OPEC, oil companies like BP, Shell, and Equinor, research outfits like Wood Mackenzie GTM and Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And these conclusions um, from these reports, from these scenarios, are all over the map. So a group of experts at the research outfit, Resources for the Future, put them all together and created their own model, a way to compare the projections or the scenarios in a meaningful way and get a more accurate picture of how the future may play out. And it's important because businesses and governments plan infrastructure for decades based on these scenarios. And you could make radically different decisions based on which scenario you think will come true. So Shale, how would you uh, rank this endeavor from the folks at Resources for the Future on the difficulty scale, throwing all these scenarios together and trying to come up with a way to compare them accurately? I think it's very valuable. I don't think it's super difficult, to be honest. What they had to do is they had to make these, they defined as much apples to apples comparisons as they could. One of the things that makes it challenging to compare across all these different scenarios that different folks put out is that they're looking at different timelines. They define things differently. Some will look at primary energy consumption and others at final, you know, they'll use different metrics. So the challenge here is just in being able to compare them all head to head. And and in fact, I'm sure as a result of the fact that they were trying to compare everything head to head, they threw a bunch of other scenarios out that they didn't include here because they just couldn't compare them that way. There are more than what they've included. So, you know, that's the the hard part here, but compared to the challenge of actually doing the modeling, I think this is relatively easy. So I'm really relying on your expertise here because you are the quant. You are the guy with the analysis background. So there are a few different types of scenarios that they modeled in this report. Can you walk us through what those scenarios are? So they basically group them into three different groups. Um, the first group is, a, is reference scenarios. And these are the ones where folks are saying, what will happen in the future if things largely continue as they are today? So no new policies, continued geopolitical challenges, um, nothing major 
changes. It's just sort of development according to recent trends. So that would be like the EIA reference scenario that everybody likes to rag on in the US, but there's also similar scenarios from Equinor and IEA and OPEC and others. Then the second group is um, what they've called the evolving policies scenario. I think in my mind, this actually would be the one I would say is closest to the sort of quote unquote most likely scenario, which is, well, things will change and we're going to try to incorporate what we believe to be the most likely changes, um, though there's no guarantee that these changes occur. So it's kind of the middle ground. Um, And that's where forecasts lie from, you know, Equinor has one of these, BP has one of these, Exxon has one of these. And then the third group is the, what they call the ambitious climate scenarios. And most of the time what's happening here is these are scenarios saying, well, what would it take for us to go beyond the Paris agreement? Or what would it take for us to limit global temperature rise to two degrees Celsius or lower? Um, And so this is not saying, here's what we think will happen, but it's like, this is what it would take to get to a certain point. And that's what, for example, you and I on this podcast before have spent a whole episode talking about the shell sky scenario. This is an ambitious climate scenario. So they fall into those three groups. And it's, it's important to remember that because when we talk about variabilities in the forecasts, you know, a lot of that is coming from the difference in these assumptions. Will things largely continue as they have, or will we, you know, take on a really ambitious challenge like two degrees Celsius? Well, I think a helpful exercise is to take a look at scenarios modeled in 2011 around the turn of the decade and compare them to the scenarios that we see now. So, Shale, what jumps out to you when you consider the differences between how people were thinking about changes in the energy sector in 2011 versus today? Actually, I thought, you know, when I saw the headline for that section, um, I was thinking, okay, so what is it, what likely would the forecasts have shown in 2011 and how would they likely have changed through today? And, I, you know, I think the obvious assumption would have been, well, in 2011, we didn't know, for example, how much the shale gas boom was going to impact the market in the long term. We certainly didn't know how cheap renewables would become. We didn't know how rapid the decline of coal was going to be. And so all those things would have been way, way off. And I think the reality here is, I mean, basically the, the trend line in all the forecasts for the most part was in all those directions, but it wasn't super drastic. So let's take BP's forecast, for example. In the 2012 version of their forecast, renewables by 2035 were supposed to account for something like 9% of global primary energy. This is excluding nuclear, of course. Um, And it's primary energy, which a lot of folks, one of the challenges here, just as a side note, is that the apples to apples comparison they're able to do is on primary energy. When I think these days, a lot of folks want you to end up using final energy because electricity is more efficient. So you'll end up with a higher share of renewables, um, most likely in a final energy scenario. Anyway, of global primary energy in, in 2012, BP was saying about 9%. And by 2018, they're saying about 10%. It's not a huge difference. And that that's relatively consistent across most of these forecasts. So they weren't super far off, or at least they haven't changed their mind. Now, you could argue they're still being too slow to change it. But nonetheless, the, the differences over that five-year period are not that big. The one area that there is actually a really surprisingly big difference, and I'm interested to get your take on this one, is uh, effectively energy efficiency. 
So EIA is a good example of this. In and this is, but this is true across all of the forecasts. The energy per capita globally um, that EIA was forecasting for 2035 back in 2011 was 82.6 million BTUs per person per year. 82.6 by 2017, it's 67.1, which is actually a really meaningful decline in kind of a base metric, right? Like how much energy is any given person going to use? And so the implication there, and this is true across all these forecasts, is that over the past six years, we as a global economy have actually become a lot more energy efficient, or it is expected that we will become a lot more energy efficient than it was expected five or six years ago. And that was the one that surprised me the most. I don't know about you. It did surprise me a little bit. In fact, as the researchers at RFF point out, um, IEA uh, assumed this year that global GDP is going to be 19% higher than it did in 2011, while energy consumption is actually 4% lower in 2035 compared to what they assumed in 2011. So uh, that's, that's a pretty extraordinary change. And I guess the big question is what's driving it, and that's not identified in this report. What do you think is influencing that shift? I think it's got to be a combination of electrification, which is, as I said before, more energy efficient in general. Um, so the more the larger a share of your of your energy pie comes from electricity, the more efficient you will be overall from a primary energy consumption perspective, and just greater energy efficiency in general. That latter one being the somewhat squishy one that I'd be interested to dig more into in one of these forecasts. But I did find it fascinating that that trend was true basically across all these forecasts that have changed over the past five years. And the other thing to note, I think, is though, as I think everyone would have expected, coal's share, you know, coal's expected share of the global energy mix has gone down from the forecast that we saw six or seven years ago to the forecast that we've seen today. Um, Oil actually has gone up a little bit in most of them. There's an exception, which is Exxon's forecast, interestingly enough. Um, but in the rest of them, oil actually sees a slightly larger share in 2035 than they were expecting back six, seven years ago. The scenario change that I think you would have been picturing coming into this hasn't really taken place just yet. And then when I look across all the scenarios, the biggest changes that jump out, even though they're not radical changes, they are changes nonetheless compared to seven or eight years ago, is the assumption that we're going to see a demise of nuclear. Most scenarios ratchet down nuclear by a few percentage points. Uh, The demise of coal is consistent across most of these scenarios. And there was a general assumption that coal consumption would continue to increase many years ago. Um, It it has, of course, increased in the East, but we've seen coal consumption decrease in, in the West. Um, The rise of electricity demand is something that's being reflected in these models. Uh, And then, of course, EVs are something that none of these models really took into consideration back in 2011, but they're all taking seriously now. So those all across the board, I think you've seen some significant adjustments, not extreme, but significant adjustments um, when you look at these technologies. Yeah. And, you know, I think thus far, we've mostly been talking about these scenarios as if they're all in alignment 
and sometimes they are, which is interesting. And we should talk about whether we think that's reflected in reality or groupthink. Um, but there's also a bunch of cases where the models diverge. So I think we should spend some time talking about the places where we haven't reached universal agreement yet, at least amongst these forecasts. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. That's right. Tendril recently made acquisitions of First Fuel and Energy Savvy and EEME, and then it merged with Simple Energy, and the result is Uplight. This is a company that now offers an end-to-end product for utility customer engagement. It transcends silos within power companies and helps improve interaction across every channel, program, and solution. This enables utilities to provide the personalized experiences that customers have now come to expect. Or if you want to learn more about Uplight, and what they're up to, it's uplight.com slash GTM to learn more. You know, corporate fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com gtm. Well, let's talk first about where they agree. Coals decline, renewables increase, nuclears decline, and electrifications increase is consistent across most of these scenarios. Anything else that comes to mind within those technologies or elsewhere? Yeah, I think you're right that the directionally those are all pretty well aligned. There's some um, disagreements on magnitude among the scenarios. So for example, coal, which um, is currently about 28% of primary energy consumption globally, goes down in these forecasts to anywhere from about 12% to 22% by 2040. So that's a pretty big difference in how fast coal will decline. And it's a function and part of the different assumptions in these scenarios. But I do want to make note of that because when you say coal's demise, um, you know, in the best scenario here from the coal demise perspective, it goes down to 12% from 28% by 2040. It drops a little more than 50% as a share of primary primary energy globally. So it, it's not like it sees this precipitous immediate, you know, complete demise. Like 2040 is 20 years away and it, it just falls a little more than in half. And that's in the most aggressive scenario. So I wouldn't call it coal's demise, at least according to these forecasts yet. I would say it's a, like a long, slow um, deterioration. Right. And that is very much a reflection of the differences in regions. So the RFF researchers break these scenarios down into East, you know, the Asia Pacific region and the West. And when you look at what they've modeled here, it's a tale of two charts. You see a steady slope upward in coal demand and electricity demand and oil demand in the East. And then you see a steady slope downward for those technologies in the West. And so you're going to see a radical decline in coal consumption in the West over the coming decades, but that will be offset by uh, increases in countries in the East. So you have to look at this regional specific. I agree you have to look at it regionally specific, but I also think this is one of the places where the scenarios do not agree. 
So just specifically, even in the reference scenarios, let's compare IEA and EIA, which is going to make it a little confusing to say, but um, looking at what happens, so you're right. Everybody expects that in the West, coal is going to be on a, a steady decline. In the East, um, everybody expects coal will grow, uh, but how much it will grow is a huge question. So in the IEA reference scenario, they say coal in the East is going to grow 38% out to 2040, which is a lot. And it's going to be hard to sort of turn that back. And that's the reference scenario. In contrast, EIA says in their reference scenario, says it'll only grow 6% during that same time. So the difference between 6% and 38% growth for coal um, is pretty meaningful. And those are both reference scenarios. So they should be using roughly the same assumptions. So I would say this is one of these areas that we clearly don't know the answer is what's going to happen to coal in the East over the next 20 years. Let's talk about solar. On either extreme, you have the Shell Sky scenario, which envisions 10 times more solar than the IEA's ambitious solar scenario. So you do see pretty extreme versions when it comes to a technology that's harder to predict and model like solar. Yeah, right. I mean, this is another one where sort of directionally everybody agrees, but how far it goes and how quickly is a big difference. The Shell Sky scenario says that by 2040, solar will represent 25% of global electricity generation, 25% of global electricity generation. So that's the highest that we see. On the other hand, EIA's reference scenario, this being the one that everybody in the US loves to rag on, and this is why, um, they say that by 2040, solar represents 4% of global electricity generation. I mean, personally, I would bet, if I had to choose, I'd bet on the Shell Sky scenario over the EIA one. But again, this is a place where there's pretty wide divergence. Um, this one, I'm not. It's not entirely clear to me why the divergence is so wide in the case of solar. With coal in the east, I feel like it actually is really hard to predict. With solar, this is one where I, I sort of feel like we we have a good sense, um, you know, exactly where the number is going to land. I don't think we know, but EIA is just wrong here. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that stood out to me was how people think about carbon sequestration both carbon capture from the source at power plants or soil carbon sequestration. And a lot of the ambitious climate scenarios, particularly those from BP, Shell, and Equinor, do rely to some degree on carbon sequestration, while uh, some of the others do not. Did that jump out to you? It did. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a huge variation there. Some of the scenarios basically say we will have almost no carbon capture and sequestration for the next 20 years or so. And then, you know, a couple of them, like you said, show quite a lot of it, especially in the sort of latter part, um, which is, I think what's happening is those scenarios, those are the ones that are trying to solve for two degrees Celsius and the basket of tools that they include that, you know, maybe they don't think all the other possibilities are realistic. And so they say, well, carbon capture is the one we're going to have to use. I don't know the answer to this either. I think it is a big question mark. We're just starting to see now kind of a new wave of carbon capture type uh, technologies and projects arrive, but it's still very, very early days. So I think that carbon capture and sequestration, carbon capture utilization and sequestration 
um, is one of the biggest question marks in the future of, of energy. Not surprising that the oil companies put more emphasis on CCS than other independent uh, researchers. That is interesting. Yeah, I don't know how to read into that, but it is that is a notable um, dividing line. So I want to loop back around to the similarities. Under pretty much all the models, the ambitious models, we're way past Paris climate targets. We have to see extraordinary movement like we've never seen before on the policy front to get us closer to these ambitious scenarios. I think we're when it comes to renewables, the the technology train has left the station. But the question is, if you want renewable energy to start to eat into the share of fossil fuels, when you look at primary primary energy consumption, uh, you'd need some pretty wildly ambitious policy setting. Because for the most part, you see renewables as a complement to fossil fuels, not as a replacement for fossil fuels when you it's ex- when you examine the range of scenarios. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, apart from these sort of two degrees Celsius, the ones that are solving for two degrees, that is uh, that is definitely true. It, there is one other area where there is really wide divergence in the scenarios that we should talk about, which is electric vehicles. Um, I guess this is no surprise, but if you look at, you compare all the scenarios, this is one of the useful things that RFF did. They compared specifically the EV share of global new vehicle sales in 2040 across all these scenarios. And so in the year 2040, like what portion of new cars that we buy globally are going to be electric? Uh, It's everything from EIA's reference scenario, which is 14%. Again, EIA, good luck. Um, but all the way up to OPEC has this fast EV scenario, um, which gets it up to 75%. If you set aside, I'm sort of throwing out a couple outliers here, which is sort of OPEC specifically there solving for fast EVs. And I'm throwing out EIA has an even lower scenario called the low EV scenario, where it's like... That 8% of sales by 2040. Yeah. So throughout those outliers, I'd say that the range of the sort of normal forecast would be EIA's reference at 14% up to BNF, Bloomberg, um, which forecasted at 55% in the same year. So 14% to 55%, again, that's a that's a huge difference. And it reflects, you know, I, I guess some profound disagreement about how fast vehicle electrification is going to occur. So what does all this tell you about how the global energy transformation will unfold? For me, I think the key takeaway from looking at all these models is that clean energy is probably going to be an addition to, not a replacement for fossil fuels when you map out primary energy consumption. Uh, Most projections see renewables and EVs as additional technologies, not replacement technologies. And I think you have to get into some pretty extreme scenarios to change that. I'm not sure I see it quite that way. I guess the thing that's interesting to me is to ask the question of, you know, these scenarios, I think anybody who produced one would tell you they are not supposed to be an exact reflection of the future. They are supposed to be a reflection of the future if a bunch of preconditions are in place. And so then I think the interesting question is to say, are those the right preconditions? Is that what's going to happen? And that's both from a policy perspective and from a technology perspective. So all the ways in which the forecasts have changed from 2011 to today 
Um, will they continue to change over the next five years in that same direction? Will they revert back? I mean, so, you know, the, the story of the past decade has been generally speaking, clean energy overperforming expectations. Costs have fallen faster than expected. Growth has been faster than expected for the most part over the longer term. Um, and I think that could happen again over the next decade or it could snap back. And so, for me, it's more interesting to sort of ask the question about what would make these forecasts wrong than to assume that they're right. So then, to wrap up, what's a sector that you think these organizations will be tracking in 10 years that they aren't even thinking about today? Some of them, I'm sure, are thinking about it. I know some of these companies are thinking about it. But one thing that sort of currently is not um, modeled in consistently into these forecasts where I'm I've just started to scratch the surface of spending time on it myself, but I'm interested to learn more is hydrogen um, and the role that the quote unquote hydrogen economy will play in deep decarbonization. It can play a bunch of different roles, which is makes it complicated to think about. But um, if you know, it, it, it also could solve a bunch of problems. So I'll be interested to see whether hydrogen plays a more prominent role in a decade. How about you? I still think that perpetual motion machines, vertical axis wind turbines, and flexible solar are the wave of the future, and that someday these organizations will truly wake up to these technologies. <laughs> I mean, did you notice that a, a nuclear fusion company just announced that they raised, I think, $115 million last week? No, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, Commonwealth Fusion Systems. Oh, yeah. They're they're based here. In, they're an MIT spinoff. Mm -hmm. Yep. Raised a big round. Somebody believes in them. Well, who knows who will make the next multi-million dollar bet in perpetual motion machines, but someday the IEA will wake up to their potential. <laughs> yeah, someday. <laughs> well, if you want to snack on this research, we will provide a link to the RFF report that we've been referencing in the show notes, and we want to hear from you. What do you think about what these models get wrong? Are they missing anything? Um, we, we'd love to hear your reaction to the show. I say it every week. If you do like this show, go ahead and give us a rating and review anywhere you get this podcast. Apple Podcasts is the best place to do it. Gives us higher visibility, helps us find new listeners. And of course, send a link to your friends and colleagues if you think that they would love this show. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media. Music